So my talk this afternoon is entitled Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship. And it's also the title of a document that was published last November by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And many of my comments this afternoon will be based on that text, but I can't cover everything. So um, I would encourage you uh, at your leisure to go to the bishop's website to find this document and, and to go through it a little bit more thoroughly. Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship. So what a strange election cycle that we're in right now. We have only 16 days left to vote. And perhaps many of us are saying, thank God, let's get this over with. Yeah. I've heard enough about building walls and deleting emails. I've heard enough about FBI investigations, accusations of Russian hacking, dreadful behavior from the past, possible rigging of the election. Many people are pretty firmly decided on who they're going to vote for. And there are some people who are still undecided. And I suspect there's quite a few people who are unhappy with all the choices of the candidates presented to them. And equally disappointed that our democratic system of governance seems so broken, especially when we're facing so many serious problems in our country. <clears throat> so in the midst of this, we are called to exercise faithful citizenship. But what does this mean? St. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, writes, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we also await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Catholics, we are citizens in two realms, the heavenly and the earthly. And what's most important to remember is that we relate to the earthly realm, the civil order, as citizens of heaven, as those who belong by right to the heavenly realm. We have given our unqualified allegiance to Jesus Christ, our King. And it is as His disciples that we contribute most effectively to the civil order. So the church's obligation to participate in shaping the moral character of society is a requirement of our faith. It's a basic part of the mission we have received from Jesus Christ. And this echoes the teaching in the Second Vatican Council, a document called Gaudium et Spes. Christ, the Word made flesh, in showing us the Father's love, also shows us what it truly means to be human. Christ's love for us lets us see our human dignity 
in full clarity and compels us to love our neighbors as he has loved us. Christ, the teacher, shows us what is true and good, what is in accord with our human nature as free, intelligent beings created in God's image and likeness and endowed by the Creator with dignity and rights as well as duties. Now some people question whether the church has a role to play in political life. Is it appropriate for the church to speak out on political issues? The obligation to teach the moral truths that shape our lives, including our public lives, is central to the mission given to the church by Jesus Christ. In other words, it is altogether appropriate and even required for the church to speak out and to pass judgment on public issues when they concern fundamental human rights and especially when they concern the salvation of souls. Moreover, the United States Constitution protects the right of individual believers and religious bodies to participate and speak out without government interference, favoritism, or discrimination. In our Catholic tradition, responsible citizenship is a virtue. Participation in political life is an obligation. And this obligation to participate in political life is rooted in our baptism, our baptismal commitment to follow Jesus and to bear Christian witness in all that we do. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church reminds us, this is paragraphs 1913 to 1915, it is necessary that all participate, each according to his position and role, in promoting the common good. This obligation is inherent in the dignity of the human person. As far as possible, citizens should take an active part in public life. So we're called to bring together in this participation in public life our principles and our political choices, our values and our votes. And now we have to remember that the clergy and the laity have different but complementary roles in this participation. The bishops have the primary responsibility to hand on the church's moral and social teaching. Together with priests and deacons, they are to teach fundamental moral principles that help Catholics form their consciences correctly, to provide guidance on the moral dimensions of public decisions, and to encourage the faithful to carry out their responsibilities. But the bishops do not tell Catholics for whom or against whom to vote, and nor will I do so today. Rather, it's the responsibility of pastors 
to help Catholics form their consciences in accordance with God's truth. And it is for the lay faithful to work directly for the just ordering of society. And the laity, having formed their consciences in the Catholic truth, become involved in political life in a variety of ways. Today, we're talking primarily about voting. But if casting a ballot is the only contribution we make, then it's not sufficient. It's very important, but there are a variety of other ways. Some Catholics run for office. Others work within political parties. Some communicate their concerns and positions to elected officials, lobbying, writing letters, calling public officials. And some work in other ways, joining uh, diocesan mission or advocacy networks, working uh, with the state Catholic conferences, community organizations. Any other effort to apply authentic moral teaching in the public square. Okay, so now I want to say something specifically about this very controverted idea that a lot of people have different thoughts about conscience. The church equips its members, you and I, to address political and social questions by helping them to develop a well-formed conscience. Catholics have a serious and lifelong obligation to form their consciences in accord with human reason and the teaching of the church. Conscience is not something that allows us to justify whatever we want, nor is it a mere feeling about what we should or should not do. Rather, conscience is the voice of God resounding in our hearts about revealing the truth to us and calling us to do what is good and avoid what is evil. Again, if I could quote the Catechism, conscience is a judgment of reason. doesn't say anything about feelings or decisions. It's a judgment of reason whereby the human person recognizes the moral quality of a concrete act that he is going to perform. I make a judgment in my reason about this specific act. Is it morally good or morally evil? The Catechism goes on to say, In all he says and does, man is obliged to follow faithfully what he knows to be just and right. So the formation of conscience is the key issue. How do we do it? Well, first, there's a number of elements. First, there's this desire to embrace goodness and truth. For Catholics, this begins with a willingness and openness to seek the truth, to seek what is right by reading sacred scripture and consulting the teaching of the church. It's also important to examine the facts and background information about various choices. 
And finally, all of this, this is done in the context of prayer. We need God's grace, His help in the formation of our consciences. Now here I want to address uh, a serious error that some people make with regard to conscience. Some people say, I hear what the church, what the official position of the church is on a certain issue, say for example, an issue of sexual morality, and then I consult my conscience, my feelings, my experience, and sometimes I come to a different decision about the moral rightness or wrongness of an action, different than the church's position. Is there anything wrong with this teaching? Well, I think there is. First, the authoritative teaching of the church on a question of faith and morals is not simply the current official position, which is subject to change and might even be wrong in some cases. Our Lord said to the twelve apostles, He who hears you, hears me. And he gave them the spirit of truth to guarantee the integrity of divine revelation handed down through all generations. So it is the authentic teaching of Jesus Christ himself that we hear when the official magisterium of the church is exercised by her pastors. The second problem with that approach that I just outlined is a false notion of what conscience really is. And I've already referenced this. Conscience is not a subjective feeling that I have. Rather, it is the profound capacity given to us by God himself to know the truth of the moral law and to apply that truth in concrete action. So it has nothing to do with formulating creative decisions about what I think is morally right or wrong. So the final problem here, though, is to see a kind of opposition between my conscience and the magisterium of the church. The reason there can be no real opposition between these two things is because truth is one. The moral truth revealed by God in the Old Testament, revealed by Jesus Christ to the apostles, handed on by the bishops of the church throughout history, that moral truth is the same truth which is written on our hearts, which we call the natural law, the natural moral law. And when we have difficulty discerning this inner truth, either due to the weakness of our intellects, the effects of sin in our lives, or perhaps bad example from others, in that case, it is precisely the role of the magisterium to help us 
by showing us with clarity and with certainty what is morally good and what is morally evil. If we fail to form our consciences in the light of the truths of the faith and the moral teachings of the church, then we can make erroneous judgments. We could judge something good that's evil or something evil that's good. And these judgments can have dire consequences for ourselves, both in this world and in the world to come. I now want to speak about doing good and avoiding evil. Once we have formed our consciences in the moral truth, then we have to make practical judgments regarding good and evil choices in the political arena. There are some things we must never do as individuals or as a society because these things are always incompatible with the love of God and neighbor. Such actions are so deeply flawed that they are always opposed to the authentic good of persons. These are actions that we call intrinsically evil. They must always be rejected and opposed and they must never be supported or condoned. A prime example is the intentional taking of innocent human life, as in abortion and euthanasia. In our nation, and here I'm quoting directly from the bishops, abortion and euthanasia have become preeminent threats to human dignity because they directly attack life itself, the most fundamental human good and the condition for all others. It is a mistake with grave moral consequences to treat the destruction of innocent human life merely as a matter of individual choice. A legal system that violates the basic right to life on the grounds of choice is fundamentally flawed. That is the legal system currently operative right now in our country. It is fundamentally flawed. Let me just recap what I've said so far. We have an obligation as Catholics to participate in political life. The clergy and the laity have different but complementary roles. The pastors teach and preach the moral principles, and the laity form their consciences according to the truth that they discover in their heart through the natural moral law and the magisterium of the church. And we know that there are certain actions that are intrinsically evil. They can never be done. No possible reason can excuse them. So now we come to the question of how do we evaluate various candidates How do we judge different laws or policies that are put before us to vote? 
Catholic voters should use the framework of Catholic social teaching to examine candidates' positions on issues affecting human life and dignity, as well as issues of justice and peace. And they should consider candidates' integrity, philosophy, and performance. And here again, I directly quote the bishops. It is important for all citizens to see beyond party politics, to analyze campaign rhetoric critically, and to choose their political leaders according to principle, not party affiliation or mere self-interest. As Catholics, we are not single-issue voters. A candidate's position on a single issue is not sufficient to guarantee a voter's support. Yet, if a candidate's position on a single issue promotes an intrinsically evil act, remember, an act so deeply flawed that it's always opposed to the authentic good of the human person. If a candidate promotes that, such as legal abortion or redefining marriage in a way that denies its essential meaning, then a voter should legitimately disqualify that candidate from receiving support. So I mentioned the principles of Catholic social teaching as what we bring to evaluate different candidates, different policies, laws. And I'm going to just briefly go through uh, the four dimensions of Catholic social teaching. The first I've already touched on, and it's the most important, the dignity of the human person. Human life is sacred. The dignity of the human person is the foundation of a moral vision of society. Everything that's decided in the political realm in some way is related to the dignity of the human person. Direct attacks on innocent persons are never morally acceptable at any stage or in any condition. The second principle, after the dignity of the human person, is subsidiarity. What is that? Well, the human person is not only sacred, but also social. Full human development takes place in relationship with other people. The family based on marriage between a man and a woman, is the first and fundamental unit of society and is a sanctuary for the creation and nurturing of children. It should be defended and strengthened, not redefined, undermined, or further distorted. <clears throat> Respect for the family should be reflected in every policy and program. And it is important to uphold parents' rights and responsibilities to care for their children, including the right to choose their children's education. So in this 
area of subsidiarity when we're looking at candidates? Where do they stand on the issue of the family? First, do they even know what the true meaning of that word family is? Do they recognize the rights of parents regarding their children in the area of education? Many candidates don't. They have a totally distorted notion of family or they see uh, the rights of the parents as very restricted and the state has to determine the education of the children, particularly uh, in, the, in the very area fraught with problems called uh, so-called sex education. So that's maybe a subject for another talk, but um, we have the dignity of the human person, the first principle, Catholic social teaching. Secondly, subsidiarity. In, in particular here, we look at the family. The third is the common good. And the common good refers to the whole constellation of human rights that people have. Uh, again, if I could quote Vatican II, um, the document Gaudium et Spes, it describes the common good as the sum total of social conditions which allow people, either as groups or as individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. So the common good is concerned with all of our human rights, the right to life, the right to have access to all those things that are required for a human decent life, food and shelter, education, employment, health care, housing, freedom of religion, and family life. There's more to common good. A lot of things concerning the economy, workers' rights, even stewardship of creation. But that gives you some idea that that whole area of the common good is at least one principle that we use to evaluate candidates. Dignity of the human person, subsidiarity, common good, and finally, the last is solidarity. We are one human family whatever our national, racial, ethnic, economic, and ideological differences. We are our brothers, sisters, and keepers, wherever they may be. Loving our neighbor has global dimensions and requires us to eradicate racism and address the extreme poverty and disease plaguing so much of the world. Okay. So these four principles provide a kind of framework that really doesn't fit easily into an ideology of right and left or liberal and conservative. And they don't fit easily into the platform of any one political party. When we look at candidates for office and their party platforms, we often find that no one matches exactly our Catholic values as found in these four principles. We find something else as well. Regarding some policies, people of goodwill can legitimately disagree. For example, 
what is the best kind of health care plan? Or what is the most sensible immigration policy? You could have people, sincere Catholics who've made a, a good effort to form their consciences, but they might disagree on these practical decisions. What is the best plan given these unique set of circumstances? We are all motivated by the same principles. We want the same good outcome, but we have different ideas of how to get there. So there's a legitimate pluralism that's allowed in that area. However, we also find that there could be other policies and positions that contain support for intrinsically evil acts, such as abortion. And this is precisely the case with the Democratic Party. Their platform states, and I quote, Democrats are committed to protecting and advancing reproductive health, rights, and justice. We believe unequivocally that every woman should have access to quality reproductive health care services, including safe legal abortion. The Democratic Party has, for many, many years now, publicly committed themselves to legal abortion. Now, we contrast the Democratic Party platform with the Republican platform. Quote, we assert the sanctity of human life and affirm that the unborn child has a fundamental right to life which cannot be infringed. So, given all that we've said thus far, I hope you will agree with me that it is morally incoherent for a Catholic with a correctly formed conscience to support or vote for any candidate who is in favor of abortion. But immediately, someone will object. <clears throat> but what if the candidate shares our values on many other issues that are important to us, and it's only this issue where they disagree with us? Don't we have to sort of balance everything out, take it all into consideration. What do we say about this objection? Well, I want to refer immediately to the words of St. John Paul II. He wrote, the common outcry which is justly made on behalf of human rights, for example, the right to health, to home, to work, to family, to culture. The outcry on behalf of all of these rights, John Paul says, is false and illusory if the right to life, the most basic and fundamental right, and the condition for all other personal rights is not defended with maximum determination. End of quote. In other words, he's saying being right about these other issues 
cannot excuse being wrong about the most important right that we have. Now I want to speak uh, hypothetically. Suppose there was a candidate for the highest office in our land who wholeheartedly embraces Planned Parenthood, which is a criminal organization responsible for the deaths of thousands of children and it sells the body parts of the babies. If this candidate wholeheartedly embraces Planned Parenthood, suppose further the candidate has expressed admiration for the eugenicist founder of this organization, Margaret Sanger. Suppose that this candidate has stated that the child in the womb has no constitutional rights, that people have to change their religious beliefs to accommodate abortion. And finally, suppose this candidate has defended late-term abortions in a nationally televised debate. In this case, I cannot morally vote for that person. It would be a betrayal of my faith and an utter disregard for the one who said, whatever you do to the least of my brothers, you do to me. A person choosing to vote for this candidate would necessarily be responsible for the evil which would result from their choice. Now let us suppose, again, hypothetically speaking, that the only other candidate that has a viable chance to be elected to that same office happens to be a billionaire businessman who is known for appearing on reality TV shows and for his past behavior, which is clearly immoral. Suppose further, however, that this candidate is pro-life. He has promised to implement pro-life policies if elected, including appointing pro-life Supreme Court justices, and has chosen to be advised by well-known pro-life leaders. The question is, should I vote for this person? It's a difficult question. But some would immediately say, no, it's not difficult at all. No, don't vote for this person. <clears throat> this candidate is clearly unqualified, unfit for political office. And what's more, I cannot trust what he says. Instead, I will vote for some other third party candidate who I can feel good about voting for and who is also pro-life. Now I certainly understand and respect that point of view, but I disagree with it. I find more convincing the point of view put forward uh, by Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. This is what he says. 
he notes that not only do we compare the candidates themselves and their positions, but we also look at the differences between the parties that those candidates represent. Each party is an entire universe of philosophies, ideologies, causes, positions, and people. Each party is a whole army of people who are going to surround and advise the candidate and fill many positions of influence if that candidate is elected. For instance, in the case of the presidential race, we have to ask what kind of people this president would nominate to serve on the Supreme Court and the other federal courts. We have to ask what direction they lean towards on the most fundamental issues of life, religious freedom, marriage, and family. And again, what direction their party leans on those issues. Remember, Father Frank Pavone says, it is not just that the candidate shapes the office, the office also shapes the candidate, and so does the party and the prevailing positions of the party. What kind of people would this president appoint as Surgeon General, Attorney General, Secretary of State, Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, and so many other positions? We could conclude that whichever candidate is elected, damage to our country will be done. It's unfortunate to have to come to that conclusion. But Father Pavone gives us an analogy to think about this situation and how we should respond. It's the analogy of the runaway train. Imagine that you are at the controls of a runaway train and you cannot stop it. But imagine too that what you can do is change the track that it is on. At the end of one track, you know it will kill a large number of people. And at the end of the other track, a smaller number of people. What do you do? Obviously, you do not want the train to kill anybody. But you cannot stop the train. November 6th is going to come. There's going to be an election. We can't stop it. In this case with the train, you obviously would change the train to the track where it is going to do the least damage. You're not choosing to kill anyone. The death and destruction are beyond your intentions and your ability to stop. But you are able to decrease the damage. By changing the train to the track where it will do less damage, you're not choosing evil, you are choosing to limit evil. And that choice is a good. The guidance here is simple. It's the difference between certainty and doubt. Very often, elections present us with the choice between a candidate we know we don't want and an alternative about whom we cannot be sure. 
But you don't have to be certain about every choice or action of your candidate and how it's going to turn out. If they lean in the right direction, if there is a probability or even a possibility that they will do the right thing and make the right choices, that is better than the certainty of someone who will make the wrong choices. And when faced with the choice between a certain evil and a possible good, you choose the possible good. We have to remember also that our vote is not meant to make us feel good. It is meant to influence society in the right direction by helping to get people into public office that will make that happen. A vote is not an opinion poll about what we think about a candidate. It is a transfer of power, and it is a gamble. God does not always give us clear, predictable choices. He expects us to use good judgment. And good judgment helps us to avoid evils that are certain and increase the possibilities for good. In conclusion, and it's always a happy thing to hear the speaker say those words. In conclusion, we must remember here in the chapel of Our Lady of Guadalupe, the power of prayer. The struggles that we face as a nation cannot be addressed solely by choosing the best candidate for political office. Our problems are so much beyond possibility of being solved by one election. No, in addition to forming our consciences, we must fast and pray. And I would emphasize prayer of the rosary. In this prayer, asking our loving and gracious God to give us the ability to effectively proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through our daily witness to our faith and his teachings. Let us all take to heart the urgency of our vocation to live in service to others through the grace of Christ and ask humbly in prayer for an outpouring of God's grace on the United States of America. Thank you.